on-demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Thursday edition of PFT PM. September 13, week two begins later tonight. Got some best bets coming up with Michael David Smith. We each pick three games for the weekend against the spread, which really sucks. I wish gambling wasn't legal now in some states, then I wouldn't have to pick games against the spread because it's a lot harder than picking them straight up. All right, but before we get to MDS, good friend of not this program because he's never been on it before, but after today he officially becomes a good friend of this program, an alumnus of the old pro football talk show on NBCSN, now with 98.7 in, it's ESPN 98.7, rather, New York City, the Humpty and Candy Show, 10 to 1, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern weekdays, and also a periodic guest on First Things First. Again, we won't hope that against him, even though it's on FS1 up against PFT Live and NBCSN. He's Chris Canning. He joins us now. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. And, you know, I thought of you recently because West Virginia University was back in Charlotte. I didn't realize you went to high school in Charlotte. You were in Charlotte when you were playing for Virginia, and your Cavaliers kicked the shit out of the Mountaineers. Back in two thousand two ish. I was there. I was there for the it was not a good one. It was a long drive <laughs> to see the Depends on what end you were on, on yeah, that one. Yeah, it was not good. It was not good. Yeah. And then the Virginia yeah. band had a nice little uh nice little segment for us at halftime which pissed everybody off, which made it an even better day. Absolutely not. It was a great day for the Cavaliers, for the Mountaineers, not so much. But hey, we had a hell of a party in Charlotte that weekend. Well, I, can, I assume you. That was Matt Schaub was the quarterback of that team, if I recall correctly. Yeah, Matt Schaub was the quarterback, but I mean, we had a lot of NFL talent on that team. You're talking about having Marcus Higgins there and the Brickenshaw Ferguson, Heath Miller. We were a loaded team that year. Well, I found out. Oh, I definitely found out. That was a long that was a long drive down. It was a longer drive back. And I went to one more bowl game like that the following year. West Virginia got rolled by Maryland in the Gator Bowl. And I said to my wife, why do we do this to ourselves? Like, you drive all this way, you spend all this money, you show up, and the team doesn't show up. Something's wrong here. So we, we, we've curtailed our bowl game since then. So it's all your fault. Or actually, I should thank you because we probably avoided a lot of other expense and misery after that. So thank you for kicking the crap out of us all those years ago, Chris. Well, Mike, you can feel better about it. At least your football program's in better shape than ours is right now. Well, that's true. That's true. You know, we, we lucked into Will Greer, and uh, this year, who knows what's going to happen, although not playing this weekend due to the hurricane that's going to hit North Carolina, the NC State-West Virginia game canceled. I don't know if they're going to make that up or not, but that was going to be, that was like the first game to watch, like maybe that's one that West Virginia would lose. And that Big 12, I don't like being in the Big 12. I don't like this whole conference alignment stuff. I, it's a shame that the Big East fell apart. And it's a shame that West Virginia couldn't land in one of the other conferences because the Big 12 just makes no sense. I feel bad for the kids in the non-revenue sports to have to fly back and forth to Oklahoma and Texas for wrestling and track and swimming. And it's just, I, I, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it either. You get rid of a lot of the natural rivalries and a lot of these kids grow up playing against these kids from different parts of, parts of that area. And now they don't have the opportunity to compete against them at the collegiate level. So I'm right there with you. Well, we got a big rivalry coming up this weekend. There's a lot of stuff we can talk to you about, but this Giants-Cowboys game, I mean, you played for the Giants and the Cowboys, and, and both teams right now after week one, a little disappointing, although I think the Giants had a better showing even though both teams lost. It, it has a weird feel of an elimination game, if that's even possible in week two, but it's like whoever loses this one is really, really screwed. Yeah, you're going to be in trouble because you realize that both of these teams are probably playing for the wild card because they're in the same division as the Philadelphia Eagles. And with the stacked NFC, you don't want to fall behind the eight ball. 
So, yeah, you're definitely looking at this game and saying that both teams can't afford to lose this game. But ultimately, the loser of this game has got, got a big hole that they're going to have to climb out of. Well, especially since Washington looked better than expected and, and handled Arizona fairly easily on the road week one, now comes home against the Colts team that, you know, most people think Washington's going to win. And I look at Washington, I did not expect them to win last week. I don't expect them to have much this year, but so far they're proving me wrong. And a lot of the reason is ageless Adrian Peterson came into the league in 2007, 33 years old, and he's still getting it done. I, if he stays healthy with Alex Smith playing quarterback, the guy rarely makes mistakes. I think that the loser of this game on Sunday between the Cowboys and the Giants is going to have to worry about three teams are going to have to climb over in the division. Yeah, I mean, and that's the one thing about the Washington Redskins. You didn't know where the ground game was going to come from after Darius guys got hurt. But they went out and signed Adrian Peterson. Looks like he's still got some gas in the tank. And then you've got a complimentary back in Chris Thompson. That can be a receiver out of the backfield and a threat on third downs. Alex Smith has always been a steady quarterback. The only knock on him is that he limits your offense because he doesn't have some of the arm talent of elite-level quarterbacks. But he's always been consistent in terms of wins, especially over the course of the last three or four seasons. And then you look at that front seven for the Washington Redskins, and they're pretty damn good too. So, I mean, the Redskins are going to have to be a team that you deal with in the NFC East, but I feel like the Redskins and the Eagles are more complete teams than both the Cowboys and the Giants. You know, Adrian Peterson's been around so long, it seems like everyone's got an Adrian Peterson story. Typically, it deals with his handshake. Do you, do you have any specific memory of Peterson from your playing days? Yeah, you know what? I, he was playing for the Minnesota Vikings in 2007. I think that was his rookie year. And, uh, you know, we played that old stack defense where you two-gap. And I just remember him running full speed through the hole, but he was turned sideways, Mike. And I was like, how is it possible that somebody can run full speed with their shoulders perpendicular to the line of scrimmage? It just didn't make any sense. And then I just said, that is a special, special cat. And I remember the coaching staff saying, there are running backs that do very well with the space that's created for them by the offensive line. And then there are running backs that can create their own space. The latter is a lot harder to find. And Adrian Peterson is one of those special running backs that can do that. Even at this advanced age, he's still capable of being a difference maker in the run game between the tackles. And here's what's amazing to me. I talked to him the other day. He is not giving up on the possibility of catching Emmett Smith as the all-time leading rusher. He needs nearly 6,000 more yards. He's 33. No one believes in him. And now he's at this stage in his career where I feel like he feeds on that, that reality that people are doubting him. And he looked as good as ever. He had 70 receiving yards on Sunday for Washington. And if he can stay healthy, and that's a big if, but, you know, he had a couple of lost seasons, that that uh, 2016 knee injury, the 2014 off-field issue with the discipline of his son. You, if you give him full seasons those two years, who knows? Maybe he does have a shot. Maybe he has a shot anyway. One thing I've learned about Adrian Peterson, you don't pick against the guy. Yeah, you just don't count guys like that out, right? They've defied the odds their entire life. And- and that's the one thing. Adrian Peterson is a special talent. You don't see running backs have that type of longevity in our game, but he's certainly been able to do that. Another running back that's, that's still going at it is Frank Gore. And he's somebody that you wouldn't think as being in the top five of the all-time rushers list, but that's where he's at. He's fourth, I believe, and he's a few hundred yards away from catching number three. So, I mean, Adrian Peterson and Frank Gore are still guys that can get it done at this level. Um, but, you know, I think it takes the right role. It's got to be in the right offense. But both of those guys can still be contributors. I'm glad you mentioned Frank Gore. You know, and people will say, if I, if I mention 
that this guy's a Hall of Famer. Oh, no, he's not. Well, wait a minute. Yes, he is. Who else? What other running backs from this era are getting in other than Frank Gore and Adrian Peterson? Frank Gore is going to finish at least in the top four. He has a shot at the top three. Barry Sanders is. It's going to take a couple years probably for Gore to get top three, but that's incredible to me. And Peterson is going to keep playing as long as they'll let him. And it's I just, in hindsight, the fact that he was available until August the 20th, you know, maybe next year somebody's going to jump on him earlier because he's a guy that can still get it done and and I think teams shied away from Peterson because I don't think he is is wired to accept like a backup role or a part-time role he needs to be the guy but you know what he can still be the guy so somebody should sign him to be the guy in March instead of August yeah I would agree with that Mike you would want to get a guy in sooner rather than later just so he can get acclimated to the system that you're running and he can familiarize himself with that that way he has a chance to be his most productive once the regular season rolls around um, but, yeah, when you start talking about the importance of a running game, I mean, those two guys understand the value of a four-yard run. not necessarily always about the splash plays. It's about providing some consistency, some balance in the offense. You know, everybody wants to have, you know, these offenses where your quarterback is throwing for 300 yards a game and three touchdowns. But if you look at last year's playoff field, the top ten rushing teams, nine of them were in the postseason last year. The only one that didn't qualify was the Dallas Cowboys. So that tells you the importance of being able to run the football and have that balance on offense. Yeah, absolutely right. I was just thinking that you got to have balance and you got to have a running game you can rely on when the passing game isn't there for whatever reason. You come up against a defense that shuts it down. It's a weather day. It's a wind day. Whatever. You got to be able to run the ball. And as to that Cowboys rushing attack, is it is it overly simplistic to just say, look, the offensive line isn't what it was? two years ago with Travis Frederick out, with Tyron Smith seemingly always banged up, with Zach Martin having that knee issue in training camp in the preseason. This offensive line isn't what it was, and if the offensive line isn't dominant, Ezekiel Elliott can't run like he did, and if he can't run like he did two years ago, Dak Prescott can't pass like he did. I think it's a combination of the fact that the health on the offensive line is an issue, but also the looks that defenses are presenting the Dallas Cowboys offense because Ezekiel Elliott is the one offensive player that dictates fronts and coverages. I think defenses are taking him away. They're going to stack the box. They're going to crowd it in right there, and they're going to force Dak Prescott to beat you as a pocket passer and throwing the ball outside of the numbers. And, Mike, he hasn't proven that he can be consistent enough in that regard to win games for the Dallas Cowboys. Teams are basically begging Dak Prescott to be a volume passer and, and try – to attempt to beat them that way with that type of offensive attack just because they know that if Ezekiel Elliott gets going and that offense stays on schedule, it's going to be a long day. This Cowboys team is built to dictate the complexion of the game, being able to control time of possession, being able to stay on schedule, second and six are better, third and three are better. And in 2016, they did that better than any team in football. But since they've gotten away from that, of course, Zeke with the six-game suspension last year, and we saw in the first three games of that suspension – Dak Prescott wasn't the same quarterback. He had eight turnovers. So Dak Prescott has got to prove this year that he's taken his game to a place where he can provide balance on the offense the other way and being able to throw the ball down the field outside the numbers. Yeah, last year as the season approached, Kevin Gilbride, the offensive coordinator in New York, you guys won a ring together there several years ago. He said that he'd been studying Dak Prescott, and his conclusion was he just had so much time as a rookie to go through his progressions and find an open receiver. And even with all that time, he wasn't throwing the ball down the field. And if you're not going to throw the ball down the field when you have time, 
it's going to be less likely you throw the ball down the field when you're rushed and when you don't have that luxury of time and you don't have the safety crashing up to the line of scrimmage to try to get Ezekiel Elliott. And we've seen it now the last year and into this season. Maybe Dak Prescott doesn't have that that full complement of throws that you need to make in order to be a successful quarterback, a franchise quarterback. And if you don't have a number one receiver on top of that, you don't have anybody who's going to scare anyone. No one's commanding double coverage. You don't have... You know, the, the uh, defense tilted one way so you don't get favorable matchups away from your top receiver. Yeah, you just make things worse when you don't have top-tier top talent at the receiver position or at the tight end position. You look at the Patriots, they don't have a number one wide receiver, but they have Gronkowski, who's like a number one wide receiver. But the issue with the Dallas Cowboys is you've got to figure out who Dak Prescott is, whether he's your franchise quarterback or not, so you can make a decision on him definitively moving forward because he's a fourth-round pick. There is no fifth-year option. So he's already had the conversation that says that it's one of those known things that they're going to start talking about contract after this season. If he doesn't produce, if what we see from him is like we've seen from the last nine games where he sold for six touchdowns to nine interceptions, then I think the Dallas Cowboys will make it an easy decision to move on from Dak Prescott. He's not your guy. And you know, one of the challenges is, and, and I'm sure you know Jerry Jones well from your time down there, he falls in love with guys, and it takes a lot for him to fall out of love with guys. Like, he's stubborn about that, and, and he will support a guy completely and totally and unconditionally until that one moment where it all flips. And to me, I feel like he's going to give Dak Prescott every opportunity to show that he's the franchise guy before they would give up on him and try to find someone else, in part because it's not easy to find someone else. You almost have to have a really, really bad year in a draft where there are a bunch of great guys coming in and you hope that it all falls together and you get the guy who's going to become your franchise quarterback for the next decade. No, you're right. And you you saw what happened to him a couple of years ago. You you know, just fate would have it that uh, the Denver Broncos moved in front of the Dallas Cowboys attempt to try to get Paxton Lynch at the back end of the first round. I'm glad that Jerry Jerry Jones probably glad he didn't didn't have the the choice to be able to make that move and get that pick because he didn't pan out. But, yeah, you're right, Mike. It's hard to find franchise quarterbacks, and that's why if you think you've got something, you give it every opportunity to work out. But I just look at the Cowboys' window. You're not going to be able to have this offensive line together much longer, and you've got to think about Ezekiel Elliott and his contract situation. You know that he's going to be looking for money, more money sooner rather than later based on what we've seen the Los Angeles Rams do with Todd Gurley. So, I mean, you, there are a lot, of, a lot of balls to juggle, a lot of balls in the air for Jerry Jones. He's got to figure out, right now whether or not he's got a guy because if you don't you got to try to find somebody and capitalize on having this collection of talent on this team you overlapped with jason garrett for a couple of seasons in dallas he arrived as offensive coordinator in 2007 i can't believe he's been there as long as he has is it fair to say that the offense isn't all that creative it is fairly basic it seems to be talent driven if you got the talent to run his system, a fairly basic system, then it's going to work. And if you don't have the talent, it's just not going to work. And they don't adapt and they don't create and they don't innovate to mesh with the specific skills and abilities of the players that they happen to have available to them. Well, I know that Jason Garrett can be as creative as his quarterback will allow him to be. That's one thing I do know, because when Tony Romo was there, often a lot of creative things. And then even being on the other side of it when I was playing for the Giants, we would go head-to-head with them twice a year, and you just see some of the wrinkles that they would have in the offense. A running play, what they used to call the rat bim, was just something that we had never seen before. And, you know, some backside blocking and creating natural cutback lanes with, with a play design that the NFL really hadn't seen before, or at least not in the last decade. So 
Yeah, Jason Garrett can be creative, but I, I think there are limitations with his offense, and that's in large part based on the quarterback that you have and the receivers that they've had. So I don't know how they try to, I guess, get Dak Prescott to evolve as a quarterback that can consistently win from the pocket. But what I do know is they have to find a way to be able to take pressure off of Ezekiel Elliott in that running game because defenses are keying in on him now. You heard Landon Collins' comments yesterday. He said, we're going to put the game in Dak Prescott's hands, and he's going to have to beat us. Well, guess what? The Carolina Panthers did that last week. Dak Prescott couldn't get it done. He got sacked six times. I think a lot of those sacks were on him, not the offensive line. So we'll see what happens a week later against the division rival. On him because he held the ball too long? Yeah, on him because he held the ball too long, and then he tried to escape to the wrong place. On that last one, the strip sack by Mario Addison, the line had picked up the twist on perfectly, but I think he escaped to the wrong place, and it gave Addison some time to be able to catch up and close in on Prescott. Ultimately, he calls that sack fumble. And, and I'm sure a lot of that is something that has its roots in film study, that the defensive linemen look to see what a quarterback does when it's time to bail out of the pocket so you know how to adjust your angle and your pursuit. And so he's got to know not just what the defensive line's going to do, but what his his habits have shown on film. And, and isn't that where that's all, all won and lost in your film study and your preparation for what's going to happen when the pocket collapses? No, you're absolutely right, Mike. Every player has tendencies, and so as a quarterback, you've got to do a good job of self-scouting. But if you look at where Dak Prescott is now in his pro career, you know, he's got a lot on him because the Cowboys are asking him to do more. Travis Frederick is out, so there's probably got to be more gymnastics for Dak Prescott at the line of scrimmage, not only trying to diagnose the coverages that he's facing, but also identifying the fronts and pointing out the mic and ID in him for protection purposes as well. Those were all things Travis Frederick took care of. Now he's out of the lineup. Joe Looney's in. You know, some of that will be on Looney, but you got to think the Cowboys and Scott Linehan are probably putting more on Dak Prescott. And you don't know how a young quarterback is going to handle that. So I think this is a show-and-prove year for Dak Prescott, fair or unfair. I think the Cowboys have to make a definitive decision about him after this year. What's been the mood in New York about Eli Manning? You you played with him, won a Super Bowl with him. He's still there after that weird, bizarre benching and and uh, reinstallment as the starting quarterback last season. Is there a belief that he can still get it done, or is the thinking that the window's closing and it's just a matter of him squeezing out whatever he can and whatever time he has left? Well, Mike, I tell you what. After last Sunday's game. I think a lot of Giants fans are looking at Eli Manning and wondering why is this offense only scoring 15 points when you have Odell Beckham Jr. and Saquon Barkley, Evan Ingram, and Sterling Shepard. We recognize that the offensive line has underwhelmed in their performance. It's not like when Pat Shermer retooled the Vikings offensive line two seasons ago. It hasn't gone that well, but yet and still you have home run hitters in your skill positions all over the field. Why can't you produce? I think a lot of the fans are pointing to Eli Manning and him being inaccurate with a lot of his throws. But, Mike, when they have those types of pointed criticisms, I point right back to the offensive line because you can't ask a quarterback to be accurate with his throws when he doesn't trust the protection in front of him. You can't play quarterback in our league if you're not upright consistently. And that's exactly where Eli Manning is right now. He's seeing the rush, and I think he's getting rid of the ball a sec, you know, a half second before he has to. There was a shot early in that third quarter that he took to Odell Beckham Jr. into the end zone, and the pass was a little bit overthrown. He had all the time in the world in the pocket, but again, because his clock has been sped up the past couple of seasons, 
due to a lack of protection, he hasn't necessarily been accurate on his down-the-field pass. And so that's where Eli Manning is right now. You hope that would improve. You hope the offensive line gels and they consistently form a clean pocket for Eli Manning. But I can't have a lot of confidence in that knowing the personnel up front because Eric Flowers is still there. Patrick Amame has not played well. And so you can't really expect a whole lot when two of the five guys on your offensive line are liabilities. You know, I've never really thought of it that way where poor blocking can mess a guy up even on a play when he has good blocking. That because he's so used to having that that alarm go off so quickly, even when he's got time, he, he's thinking, I'm rid of it, and he starts, I guess, starts seeing ghosts or starts assuming here comes the hit, or if I don't get rid of it now, you know, the ball's going to be flopping around on the turf. But I guess that's a, a real dynamic. The, the more a guy has limited time to throw, the, the less he's going to trust on that one play where he's trying to get it down the field. Lo and behold, he's got time, but he hasn't bothered to stop and, and confirm that he does have time because he's so worried about getting rid of it. Yeah, Mike, you don't have to look any further than David, David Carr, Derek Carr's older brother. I mean, they, he got the career beat out of him his rookie season with the Texans. He was sacked the NFL record 76 times, and he, he just never lived up to his potential and being the number one overall pick. And that's because he was one of those guys – that had his internal clock sped up to the point where he couldn't operate the offense, and he was never able to get past that. It's a shame that Jerry Reese and and Ben McAdoo have mismanaged Eli Manning in the twilight of his career because I still think he's a good enough player at the quarterback position to be able to to have a championship-contending team. It's just with with the offensive line being the way that it is, with the lack of a running game, you know, the previous two seasons, Eli Manning hasn't looked like a capable quarterback. They've asked him to elevate the play of everybody around him, and he's just not that guy anymore. And thinking of David Carr and what he went through as a rookie in those early years of his career in Houston, now you've got Josh Allen in Buffalo who's going to get thrown into the fray this week, in part because Nathan Peterman was a disaster against your another one of your former teams, the Ravens. And don't the Bills have to be worried about this, about creating a mindset for Josh Allen that's going to stick with him beyond this year because the offensive line isn't as good as it needs to be. We saw that last week. We may see it again this weekend, even if the Chargers don't have Joey Bosa, and they likely won't. But Josh Allen can end up having a screwed-up internal clock that he's not going to be able to get rid of. No, he absolutely might have that happen to him as well just because the Bills have a loft issue. They have a lack of freaking talent, and they don't have a supporting cast that can make things easier for their quarterback. And you look at what Nathan Peterman was supposed to be, he was just the guy that was going to be out there until Josh Allen was ready. And then you would go ahead and insert Josh Allen as the starting quarterback. But the only problem was Nathan Peterman was so bad in the season opener that the front office, the coaching staff, they had no other choice. Because the guys in the locker room realized that Nathan Peterman doesn't give them any chance of being able to win a football game, maybe them knowing that Josh Allen is a starting quarterback might make this team a little bit more competitive. I don't know that. We'll find out on Sunday. But that has to be the thinking of Scott, I mean, Sean McDermott because you don't want to be in a situation where your head coach is sending a message but he's already lost his team because those guys know the starting quarterback doesn't give you a shot to win. Yeah, I think that's one factor that gets overlooked when it comes to who a quarterback is going to be. The coach has to know what the players in the locker room want. And sometimes it's split. 
but sometimes it's clear. And it's probably fairly clear after what we've seen Nathan Peterman do in two of his three NFL starts that he's not the guy that should be on the field and the players are going to revolt if you don't get him off there. And now we see what Josh Allen can do. But it's going to, I'm, I'm glad you, you raised this point of speeding up the clock and having it stick with a guy because that's going to be something to watch as Josh Allen's career moves forward. Now, with the Ravens, I, and, and people just assume the Bills suck that that's the explanation for 47-3. What if it's just the Ravens are really damn good and maybe the Bills aren't a complete disaster? It's just the Ravens are going to kick the crap out of everybody they face this year. I think there's a chance that may be the truth we're going to find out tonight against the Bengals. Yeah, Mike, we try not to overreact week to week, right? The truth is usually in the middle of the two explanations. So it's either the Bills suck or the Ravens are really good. Probably somewhere in the middle. I I will say this. I like a lot of the pieces on the Baltimore Ravens defense. I think their defense has a chance to be really, really special this year. A lot of talented young players, Matt Jadon and C.J. Mosley, uh, their cornerbacks, they're a really deep group, and that's a, that's a strength of the team on the back end. But, uh, yeah, I like the Ravens, what they have as far as the defensive side of the ball. Offense remains to be seen. They went out and got some weapons for Joe Flacco. They brought in Crabtree, Willie Sneed, and John Brown. Those guys seem to have paid dividends. But we'll see how consistent that connection can be moving forward. You know, the Ravens' defense, I think they're going to be good at taking the ball away, but not as many extra possessions as they got for their offense in that Bills game. So we'll get a better idea of what that group is going to be in tonight's game. Cincinnati's a place they typically don't play well. The Ravens are 3-7 and seven in the Joe Flacco era in the jungle. So I think this is going to be a great game tonight. I think it's going to be dominated by defense. We'll see which offense can make enough plays to win the game. How in the hell does Terrell Suggs keep doing it? He's a freak of nature, Mike. That's the only explanation. He's a freak of nature. Um, You know, he's just one of those guys that loves the game. He loves to compete. He takes care of his body. He's religious about that in the offseason. And I think that's the important thing, right? If you're going to commit to playing as long as you can, quote-unquote, until the wheels fall off, then you've got to be diligent about taking care of your body. And he's one of those guys that spends hundreds of thousands of dollars in body work and taking care of himself, therapy and masseuses and all that, all that stuff. He does all of that stuff in the offseason, Mike, not just the regular season. I think that's why he's been able to have this type of longevity. You know, we hear all the time about all the money that players make, and we assume that they're rolling around in, in gold coins like Scrooge McDuck. But you, you touched <laughs> on a good point. There's a lot of expenses beyond taxes. you got to spend the money to make the money, especially if you want to prolong your career. And, and I mean, what, what's the biggest number you've heard personally that a guy spent on, on just making sure his body was right and ready to go so he could earn his money? James Harrison, he's the guy that, that I know of that spends probably the most money in taking care of his body. From what I've heard, he spends upwards of a half a million bucks a year. Wow. In just taking care of his body. I mean, that's, that's how serious it is. But that's a small investment when you're a guy that's making, you know, $10 million plus, And that's exactly where most top-end pass rushers are. You're talking about a guy, he's the team's number one pass rusher. He's making over $10 million a year. That's just the economics of today's game. So, yeah, you say that's a big number, a half a million dollars, but to me it's well worth the expense. 
But, you know, when you're spending that much money, I guess it makes that calculation a little bit easier when you get late in your career. If they're not offering you big money, well, i got to spend all this money just to get on the field. I'm not going to do it anymore. Maybe that's one of the reasons why James Harrison decided to walk away when he did. All right, I, I don't want to walk away now, but I've taken a half hour of your time. You had a radio show today. you got other things to do. I could keep talking to you for a long time, but I think we covered <laughs> we covered everything we can cover today. I don't want to be greedy. See, if I keep you for too long today, then the next time we ask you, you're going to say, God, that, that guy had me on for an hour last time. I'm not doing it. So I'll, I'll put a pin in it for today and I'll thank you, Chris. It's been great talking to you. Hope to do it again and we will check you out on ESPN 98.7 Humpty and Candy and uh, I reluctantly mention again that you're on First Things First on FS1 because it's on the air when we're on the air. But what time's that show on? You, there's like a window before we're on and after we're on, right? It's 6.30 to 9.30? Is that yeah, what it is? 6.30 to 9.30. All yep. right, so we're on 7 to 9. So, okay, I guess you can watch the first half hour and the last half hour and see if you see Chris then. <laughs> How's that work? All right, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. All right, thanks, Chris. Great talking to you. All right, folks. Hey, there he is, Chris Canny. And up next, as promised, it is Michael David Smith with the best bets for week two. And when that ends, it's just over. It's just done. Just go have a good time. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. We're going to play the Adrian Peterson interview tomorrow on PFT Live. Pat McAfee is going to give us a phone call. We may pick some games with Pat and more. Check me out tomorrow morning on NBCSN. You can watch First Things First from 639 and 9 to 930. 7 to 9 though, NBCSN, PFT Live. Have a great day, everybody. All right, it's week two best bets on Pro Football Talk. Dot com last week mds went two and one i was one one and one these are picks against the spread our best three i guess i got to do better than i did last week that's for damn sure this week we're going to pick three games i go first this week mds goes first in the odd numbered week so for me we're going to start this off with a team that seems to be falling apart and is throwing a rookie quarterback to the wolves i'm not taking the bills i'm taking the team that is playing the bills the san diego chargers otherwise known as the Los Angeles Chargers, minus 7.5. I think this one is going to be ugly in western New York. Josh Allen was put in mothballs last week for a reason. They wanted to protect him. This week they have no choice. They can't put Nathan Peterman back on the field against the Chargers team that picked him off five times in one half last year. I like the Chargers, who probably feeling salty about their inability to stay close enough to the Chiefs last week, wanting to avoid a slow start to the season. They are going to go into Buffalo loaded for Bear. Anthony Lynn, a guy that coached on that that staff and maybe feels like he should have been considered for a head coaching job there. I think he's going to have extra motivation to get his team ready to go and go in there and blow the Bills off the field, MDS. Yeah, and that's not a bad strategy for making your best bet is find a team you don't believe in and just pick whoever they're playing. And, uh, you know, the last couple of years, people made a lot of money betting against the Browns. The Browns were a bad team, both straight up and against the spread. And uh, the Bills may be the same this year. They may keep losing and keep losing by significant margins in week one. So I can't pick against the Bills, unfortunately, but I can pick a team that I have quite a bit of confidence in from week one, and that's the Chiefs getting four points against the Steelers. And I really like the fact that I can take a team that looked real good in week one and get points with them. It was actually Chiefs were getting five when I first looked at the spread. It's down to four now because a lot of people are thinking like I am and taking the Chiefs. But I loved what Patrick Mahomes did. I loved what Tyree Hill did. And I like the Chiefs 
if they don't win outright, which I think they've got a pretty good chance of winning, I definitely think it'll at least be a very close game. Yeah, and I agree with you on that one. The Chiefs looked great on Sunday at L.A. Now it felt like a Chiefs home game when you saw all the red in the stands, but Patrick Mahomes, a special talent. I I just at home, there's something about the Steelers that makes it very hard to pick the upset, to pick the underdog. And and it happens. It's not like they win every game at home, but I feel like this early in the season home opener, it's going to be tough to overcome the Steelers, so I decided to stay away from that one. That one wasn't on my list, so I don't feel bad that you took one I was going to take. Now last week, you took one that I thought taking the other side of would make sense, and I didn't. You saw the Buccaneers playing the Saints tough, and I got to give it to you. The Buccaneers win it outright. You had the Buccaneers plus the the big margin they were getting this week with the Browns rolling into New Orleans, and I don't want to be anyone going into New Orleans this week, not after what happened last week. I think that Sean Payton is going to have these guys ready, and you throw on top of it the reunion with Greg Williams, the guy who single-handedly cost Sean Payton seven, eight million dollars six years ago, the last time Sean Payton got a chance to go against his former defensive coordinator, the guy who was the mastermind of the bounty scandal. 49 to 21 was the final score, and the Saints weren't even very good the year that that happened. So the Saints giving nine to the Browns, that's a lock this week. I think the Saints are going to roll the Browns. Meanwhile, the Browns are just happy they're not on track to go 0-16. I I think that that even they know this week is going to be a tough one. And until they put Baker Mayfield in at quarterback, I think it's going to be harder and harder for the Browns to, to be the contender that maybe their defense would justify them being. Yeah, and you know, the Saints better win because uh, if they were to lose to the Browns, they would now be 0-2, 0-2 at home, and 0-2 in the two games that, you know, on paper before the season looked like maybe the two easiest games on their schedule all year. So, you know, if the Saints are going to be playoff contenders, as they certainly think they are, uh, they're about the last team that can afford to start 0-2, given how their schedule looks. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that was not – uh, one that I was going to pick, but I tend to agree with you that the Saints ought to bounce back. So you've now picked two favorites to cover, and I'm going to pick my second consecutive underdog. I like the Seahawks getting three and a half against the Bears. Now, I would say the Bears overall looked more impressive in week one than the Seahawks did until that late meltdown against the Packers. Anyway, the Bears looked impressive, but I just have a feeling that the Bears are going to be reeling a little bit from the way that meltdown went, and that the Seahawks might be a team that can turn things around a little bit faster than people are expecting. I mean, Seattle is a very different team. They completely revamped their defense over the offseason, got rid of the older, more expensive players, went younger. Uh, But I actually think the Seahawks might be, after so many years of being near the top of the league, took a step back last year, I think they now might be a better team than a lot of people are getting them credit for and probably a better team than the Bears. And so I like getting three and a half points when they take on the Bears on Monday night. Yeah, and I like that pick a lot. And that was one of the ones on my list of potential selections. 
primetime game. The Seahawks are used to those types of platforms, and they played the Broncos very, very tough. The Broncos' defense was a little bit too dominant for the Seahawks to erase a deficit in the final quarter. They had three chances, a couple of sacks, ended drives, an interception at the tail end of the game, which was really a wing and a prayer that wasn't even close to getting the Seahawks in position to win the game. But I think against a Bears team that is dealing with a serious mental wound after what happened on Monday or on Sunday night rather in Green Bay. I think that that sets the stage for the Seahawks. So I agree with you on that one. All right. I feel like you're daring me to take an underdog and I have an underdog on my list. But the more I think about this one, the better I feel about the Texans going into Nashville giving two and a half, the road favorite. But when you look at what the Titans went through last weekend in Miami, that seven-hour marathon, injuries to Delaney Walker, and and also the the status of Marcus Mariota, and even if he can play, and the indications are that he will play, he's got an elbow and a shoulder problem, he just doesn't seem to have the build that is going to allow him to withstand the pounding of being an NFL quarterback, especially if he's going to be even remotely mobile as a quarterback. So, The Texans still have all their key players healthy, which I think is a big deal after one week. The Texans, I think, gave the Patriots – I thought they were going to win. They gave the Patriots a good enough game that makes me still believe in the Texans. We're not going to write them off just because they didn't go to New England and win. I think they do go to Nashville and win by more than two and a half points and and kind of set the tone for the kind of team we're going to be seeing from the Texans all year long. Yeah, and I agree with you about that pick. I, I like the Texans this week as well, and I like them to win pretty comfortably, certainly by more than a field goal. So I think they should cover, and I think that's a good pick that you made. My last pick is also going to be a favorite, and I'm kind of following in the same mold that you went in with your first pick where I'm picking against the team. The team I'm picking against is the Detroit Lions. I'm picking the 49ers minus six at home, and I just felt like as I watched the Lions on Monday night, I just felt like Matt Patricia's defense and the players playing on Matt Patricia's defense are not on the same page. It just didn't look right. They had the the pick six on the very first play of the game, and then after that, it, it just looked like a mess. They looked sloppy and disorganized, and I don't know how much you should blame Matt Patricia, how much you should blame the players, but the fact is, I think Jimmy Garoppolo is going to bounce back from a tough game against a tough Minnesota defense, and I think he's going to put a lot of points on the board against a much less tough Detroit Lions defense. So I like the 49ers minus six, and I think that's possibly a second straight blowout for Matt Patricia to start his career in Detroit, and I don't know that any coach is ever on the hot seat after two games. But I do think that it's going to be real tough uh, for the Lions to face those questions of fired Jim Caldwell after 9-7 and seven the last two years. What are you doing now with Matt Patricia after an 0-2 start, which is where I think the Lions are going to be after the 49ers beat them big. Once the walls caved in on the Lions on Monday night, did, did you notice anything about Patricia's demeanor on the sideline? And he's a guy who has a much different image than, than the reality. I, we enjoyed interviewing him at the scouting combine. I had a chance to spend a little time with him before the interview, and I, I, he comes off much different than the the um, that that big scraggly beard and the hat turned backwards, and and I it just seemed like he just was disconnected 
from the team in the second half. And and I, I just don't know how this one's going to go, so you may be on to something. But did you detect that that sense in his demeanor that I did? I absolutely did. You know, ESPN caught him on the sideline looking, I thought, kind of confused and, and kind of unclear on what was happening right in front of him. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to judge uh, – too much of a coach's body language or, or facial expression in the two seconds that he's on TV, but but <laughs> he kind of just looks dumb. And he, you're right; he doesn't come across as dumb when you when you see him in interviews, talk to him, look at his press conferences, and people who know his background say he's a very intelligent man. But boy, he he looked he did not look the part of a head coach. He often doesn't look the part of a head coach. You know, I'm not going to judge a man because he has a beard or because he wears a, a Roger Goodell clown T-shirt, but he doesn't really have the the cool demeanor on the sideline that you that you want in a head coach, or at least he didn't appear to in his first game as a head coach. And uh, th- that's going to be real interesting to follow. I, I think, you know, like I said, I, I don't want to overreact. He's not going to be on the hot seat after two games, but I think he is one of the new coaches who you could picture the wheels falling off pretty fast. I mean, he inherited a 9-17 and 17 with a franchise quarterback they're paying a lot of money to, I think they expect him to be able to win fast. They don't expect him to go 2-14 and 14 and do a total rebuild. So I think it's really one that, that bears watching if the Lions get blown out for a second straight week, as I think they're going to. Yeah, and and uh, I, I you may be on the money with that, and and they're really I don't want to be overly superficial about what a coach looks like and how he carries himself, but my God, that's what we all look at. Think about guys like Tom Landry, and and uh, you can't look like an unmade bed and be an effective NFL head coach. And I'm not saying Matt Patricia is at that level, but just there just was something there, and I think it is a disconnect from who he really is, and I think he needs to get get an image that he projects that is closer to who he really is as a coach and as a person because it just doesn't come off. Now that he's the guy who's front and center all the time, it doesn't come off maybe the way that he would want it to. All right, that's it for this week. I, I This one doesn't count, but I like the Dolphins getting three against the Jets. I really like this one. I almost made it one of my picks. You almost shamed me into picking an underdog, and I was so close to doing it. But you have any others that you got on the shelf that, that didn't make the final cut? Well, I'll just say I, I reiterate your pick of Texans minus two and a half. That's the one. If you and I could agree on one, I would have agreed with you on that one. We we are not going to ever take the same team, so I'm not taking Texans minus two and a half, but I really like that pick as well. If the two of us were kind of jointly each throwing 50 bucks in on a $100 bet on a team, I think we could agree to jointly throw in on the Texans. All right. Well, hey, MDS, great as always. And uh, we will do this again next week. And hopefully next week I'll be able to say I had a better week than you did. Uh, um, Also, all of our picks are going to be available at profootballtalk.com. Straight up, not against the spread, but you can apply the spread if you like. Thanks as always for your time, and we'll do this again next week. Okay, good talking to you, Mike. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.